Hi, Mary. How are you doing? Not bad. Thanks, Dan. I've just scrambled my way back to my working from home area in my back room. Just had to let the gardener in. You wouldn't believe it. So last week we had the gardener booked in because we've got a bamboo hedge at the back of our garden. Don't know if anyone else has that. Goes absolutely mental this time of year. You've got shoots up that actually are as tall as the tree behind it. We called the gardener purely really with that in mind. I was on calls all day on Friday when he came. I scrambled downstairs, threw him the keys to the back garden. He sort of did his thing. And then I was on another call when he left. So I heard him drop the keys back through the letterbox, looked out the back window and the bamboo was still sitting there happy as Larry and as tall as ever. So sort of sent him a message like, thanks, but the bamboo's still there. So he's just come back today to finish off the job. Nice, nice. Funny you mentioned that actually, because we also have a bamboo hedge in our garden. So I am also familiar with this bamboo problem. Ah, okay. It's really pretty crazy. That stuff grows like you wouldn't believe. It's really crazy. And our issue is that it's actually quite close to the house. And you've got to worry a little bit about the rogue shoots. They do terrible things to your house if they start growing under your floor and stuff does look quite nice on the upside, doesn't it? It's a nice look. It does look nice. We really like it. And actually, when you look out of our back garden, you've got the bamboo hedge at the back and then there's a palm tree behind that. So when we first moved in, we were like, yeah, our garden's very LA. We didn't quite go as far as like pink flamingo in the garden to really maximise the LA vibe. It's a vibe. It's, it's a vibe. nice when the weather's nice. You should own that for sure. It's the right time of year to get all the garden sorted out. Any barbecues yet on the cards or anything? Oh, Dan, we barbecue all year round. We barbecued at Christmas. You did at Christmas, <laughs> didn't you? That's right. I was just remembering that when I said it, yeah. <laughs> but yes, we've got a couple on the cards and just looking forward to spending some time sitting out. We're not away too much over the summer, so hoping to spend lots of time in the garden. Brilliant. Bring it on. Hopefully get the weather for it as well. Absolutely. So Dan, looking ahead to this week's episode, pretty exciting one. Yes, I have been really, really looking forward to getting this guest on. We're going to be speaking to Professor Alex Edmonds. I know that some listeners are familiar with Alex's work already. A few people have mentioned it to me, but he's someone that I've been following for maybe probably a year or so, read his book, listened to a lot of his TED Talks, which are brilliant. You should check them out. But a really, really good thinker, I think, and a really progressive thinker in terms of corporate finance generally, but particularly about responsible business, responsible investing. He's just a really thoughtful kind of evidence-based thinker who I think has really moved the topic forward and has some really good ideas that have a lot of resonance for us. So yeah, I've been really looking forward to speak to him. Absolutely. And he speaks really eloquently as well. So it's like all his points come across so clearly, you sort of think, how could there be any other way of thinking, which is very convincing. Shall we get on with it? I'm really looking forward. Yeah, let's do it. On with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Really looking forward to this week's episode. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at the London Business School and author of the book, Grow the Pie. Alex, welcome. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. Morning, Alex. Welcome to the podcast. Before we kick off, could you give the listeners a sense of your role, I suppose, both as a professor and also what led you to move from professor to author as well? Absolutely, yes. So my main job is a professor of finance. So the main 
duties there are teaching my students mainly in the MBA programme, but also doing academic research. But unusually, despite being a professor, I do a lot of interactions with policymakers and practitioners. So for six years, I've served on the Responsible Investment Advisory Committee of Royal London Asset Management. Also, whenever there are policy consultations from the Financial Conduct Authority or Financial Reporting Council or the SEC in the US, I'm involved in that. So what I'm really passionate about is using rigorous research to influence the practice of business. And then maybe that gets to your question as to why I decided to be an author, because as an academic, your research papers are just written by other academics. But the research that I do are on questions that are highly relevant to practitioners, such as responsible business and responsible investing. So the goal of the book was to take the academic research done by me, but not just by me, by other academics and make it accessible to a practitioner audience with real life examples and an actionable framework to put things into practice. Fantastic. I guess challenge can be good or bad, but did you find it a challenge writing for practitioners versus the conversations you tend to have with students that are very well engaged in this area and or policymakers? I really enjoyed it because throughout my career, sort of 15 years, I've always tried to make sure that my work is accessible to a wide audience. So as academics, you are actually not really rewarded for teaching. So whether you get promoted or tenure, that's exclusively based on your research. But teaching is something which I've always really, really enjoyed. So even when I started out, I would put a lot of effort into making my classes as accessible as possible, but importantly, without dumbing anything down. I've also always tried to write for practitioners audiences like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it. So the transition to the book was actually pretty natural for me. In fact, the problem was the opposite. So when you write a book, these things take two years. So you might think, well, I'm going to procrastinate because if I don't work on it today, then I won't delay the completion for a long time because it's not going to be finished for a couple of years. But for me, when I started writing the book, I would just get lost in writing it. So it would sometimes be that I wouldn't want to go back to my standard academic duties and so on. So for me, it was actually the problem was not working on the book, but not working on the book because I enjoyed working on it so much. Excellent. We'll cover lots more about the book very soon. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. I mean, the point about the practitioner angle really does come through, I think, even in the way you structured it in terms of the flexible approach to reading it that you talk about at the start. But anyway, before we get into all of that, we wanted to ask you, what's one thing we should know about you, Alex, that we wouldn't find on your CV? So one thing that I really love outside of academics is sports and fitness, and that's not typical for a finance professor. So when I was a professor at Wharton, I was the head coach of the American Cancer Society. So people who would run half marathons or full marathons for Cancer Society, I would coach them. I also loved ice hockey and boxing. So Philadelphia is where Rocky was filmed. So I boxed in the ring in which Rocky was filmed, although that ring has now been closed since because of tax evasion. Now in the UK, it's much harder to buy So I'm a big fan of this brutal boutique fitness studio called Barry's Bootcamp, which I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with. Excellent. Yes, I'm sure many listeners will be familiar with Barry's Bootcamp and various versions of similar things. They unfortunately for me don't exist in Winchester. So I've been let off the hook, I think, on Barry's. But Dan, I don't know if you've checked out Barry's Bootcamp. I have been to Barry's actually. I certainly didn't have you down as a boxer, Alex. You're saying you actually boxed in the ring that Rocky was filmed in? Yes. 
it's a great sport because for something like endurance, such as obviously long distance running, you're going at the same steady pace for a couple of hours. But why I liked ice hockey was that you're on the ice for just one or one and a half minutes, you're all out. But there's three people who play your position. So you play for one, one and a half minutes, then you'll sub out for two to three minutes and go back on. And that's similar with boxing. It's really short, sharp at first. And now for me, it's a nice contrast with the endurance athletics that I also did. Great. Okay. Well, perhaps we move on to the book then. And I suppose in some ways it's a little bit hard to know sort of where to start, but obviously the book's called Grow the Pie. And the way I think about it, you're sort of describing a new corporate paradigm, if you like. So perhaps you could just kind of lay out a little bit of the territory. What does the Grow the Pie mean? And start from the beginning in terms of giving listeners a bit of a leg into thinking about the book and what you're talking about. Absolutely. So what is the pie to begin with? So the pie is the amount of social value that a company creates. And so you can divide that pie between profits to investors and value to society. So that might be fair wages, fair taxes and fair prices and so on. And often you might think as a business leader, your goal is to maximize profits. But most business leaders have the pie splitting mentality. So if you view the pie as fixed, the only way to increase profits is to take from society. And that's why, unfortunately, you do have some companies which will try to work their employees as hard as possible and pay them as little as possible, or to price gouge their customers and charge them as much as they can get away with. So when I speak about growing the pie, I say, well, actually, the best way to think about profits and to increase them is through creating value for wider society. So if a company does something for pure social good, it might be ultimately that leads to it becoming profitable. So as an example, in 2007, Vodafone launched M-Pesa, which is a mobile money service in Kenya. Now, that's something which has been really hard to justify under profit reasons, because at the time, Vodafone's strategy was to expand in the West and to win spectrum license auctions. But it realized that it could use its digital technology to allow people to transfer money to each other on their phones. And that was really important in Kenya, because at the time, 15 million Kenyan adults were unbanked. So they launched this service just to create value for society. But then ultimately, they did find a way of monetizing it. And so that's an example of something which was driven by the desire to create social value. It ended up being profitable. But had you been focused on profit, ironically, you would have not wanted to take this decision because the link between this decision and future profits was so tenuous and so nebulous. So do you think just, I guess, with that example in mind, so of course, they did manage to monetize the idea in the longer term. But to what extent with this approach to thinking, should there be that? So you're already trying to find the tenuous link, even if it's not the be all and end all. So you'll still go ahead if the link isn't super, super strong. But do you need there to be a link that exists somewhere in the system already? Or is it, I can think purely about social value, and then afterwards, it may well become monetizable? The idea that if you're creating value for society, magically, you might be able to monetize it later on. That might seem a bit like wishful thinking. So the heartbeat of the book is rigorous evidence showing that this actually does happen at large scale. It's not just one hand-picked example that I've come up with with Vodafone. However, the research is also quite nuanced. It is not the case that everything you do to serve society always pays off, exactly as you might be suggesting, Mary. So unfortunately, when you see these debates in responsible business, you see some all or nothing arguments. So there are opponents of it saying it's completely a shambles. It's something that you should just focus on profit. 
And then on the flip side, there's people who are very sort of strongly advocating ESG and saying it always pays off. But it's that that is not the case. So only if the things that you'll do to serve society are based on your comparative advantage and expertise, will this be something that ends up leading to long-term profits. So if a company was just to donate lots of money to charity, which often people see as a responsible action, that doesn't often create value. Why? If you're Vodafone, your expertise is in telecoms. It's not choosing whether a cancer charity is more worthy than, say, a human rights or an animal rights charity. But in contrast, when Vodafone is something like launching a pacer, that does use its expertise of telecoms. And so why is that so powerful for it ending up being monetizable? Is that when you're using your expertise, then you're able to create value in a way that involves as little cost as possible to you as a company because you're using expertise that you already have. So it costs about £1 million for Vodafone to launch M-Pesa, which might seem a lot of money, but the R&D and capital expenditure budget of Vodafone at the time was about £6.5 billion. So because that was something which used the expertise they had, it wasn't something which cost them a huge amount. So this notion that you can grow the pie and find win-wins is actually not unrealistic when you think about doing things in a, a focused way. It's a really important point, isn't it? Because the debate in this area is, like you say, it's absolutely riven with those kind of all or nothing arguments. People just painting these kind of false dichotomies, either you know, you'd want to turn all companies into churches is a sort of false dichotomy I often hear. And on the other side, you do see too much win-winism to just kind of grabbing at every opportunity to say things are win-win. So I think that was perhaps partly why your book appealed to me a lot, because there is a lot of evidence-backed stuff in there, and you are trying to get into that area in the middle and really sort the wood from the trees, if you like, in terms of what's in there. I guess what I wanted to ask was, how different is, if, if we're trying to orientate this among existing paradigms or ways of thinking about business, how far away is it from the strict shareholder view, and how does it relate to other sort of competing paradigms that people might have heard of, like enlightened shareholder value, stakeholder capitalism, that sort of stuff? It's actually not hugely different from shareholder value. And that might seem a bizarre thing for me to say, because anybody to be accepted into polite society nowadays will say how much they disagree with shareholder value and shareholder capitalism and how it needs to be ripped up. And obviously, it'd be in my interest to present the ideas of the book as radical and saying that's a complete break from the norm. But in fact, when you think about shareholder value, the whole idea of shareholder value is a long-term concept to begin with. Now, I know loads of people like to rant against short-term shareholder value, but that's an oxymoron. What you learn in Finance 101, that shareholder value is the present value of all future dividends. And so this does take the long term into account. And that's not just something in a textbook. In reality, if you look at some of the most valuable companies today, like Tesla, they're clearly valued at much more than their short term profits. So actually, maximizing shareholder value is not necessarily a bad thing, because that does require you to take long term action. So for Tesla, this is investing in something like electric cars. Now, enlightened shareholder value and shareholder value are actually pretty much the same thing. Because what does enlightened shareholder value say? They say, well, in order to maximize shareholder value, you need to be enlightened and invest in things like your employees or factories and so on. But that is what shareholder value is to begin with. So the enlightened is pretty much unnecessary because shareholder value is a long-term concept. So how does my book then differ from that? I think the most important difference is the motivation is intrinsic rather than instrumental. So what do I mean by that? 
So an instrumental motivation is that you do something in order to maximise long-term shelter value. For example, if you're thinking about building an electric car factory, you can estimate how many cars will I produce, how much I can sell that for, and if the benefits exceed the costs, I'm going to go ahead. So importantly, you don't need to care about climate change, but you only need to care about profit, and then you're going to build that electric car company. And so this is why many people advocate shareholder value, because as long as you're focused on long-term profit, you will do what society wants. Why is there so much profit in electric cars? Because that's what the future is. So just following profit signals is enough to get somebody to follow what a society's needs are. But what I'm saying in terms of the grow the pie philosophy is that it's hard to have an instrumental motivation for every decision, because there are many decisions which you cannot break down into a profit calculation. So if you go back to M-Pesa, that could have never been justified with a spreadsheet. What was the profit to be made from serving some of the poorest people in the world? And it's not just the M-Pesa decision. Let's think about the decision to give your employees more parental leave. How could you calculate how many more workers will be more productive? How much money will they make? There's no way of doing that calculation. So the whole idea of growing the pie is that the motivation is intrinsic. But you're doing this in order to benefit society, to serve your employees, to serve customers. And as for the discussion with Mary earlier, like the link might not be completely visible to long-term profits. But it's not completely tenuous either, because as long as what you're doing is based on your comparative advantage and your expertise, then what the research shows is that this does ultimately lead to profits in the long term, even if profits were never your initial motivation. I wonder if you could just touch very briefly on what pushed you to write the book, full stop, but particularly what pushed you to write it sort of now or over the last recent years in terms of, was it that you felt this idea or this way of thinking wasn't out there from the angle that you're attacking it from, if you like? Or was it that your research had just got to a certain point where you thought, actually, I'm sure research is never complete, but this is now full enough that it's ready to sort of take to the external market? It was more the former, because actually a lot of the research that I'd done had been around for 10 years or so. So it had been published in these scientific journals and so on. But I'd never really thought of the urgency and the need to make it more widespread until the polarisation that we've already talked about is that when you look at the debate on responsible business, you see it being really extreme. So there's many people who think, oh, no, just focus entirely on shareholder value. And there's others who want to reform business and say shareholder value is completely damaging for society. Let's try to turn companies into charities or let's try to change directors' duties to be no longer to act in shareholders' interests. And I thought, well, that was not justified either because there are many cases in which caring about shareholders does lead you to take the right decision for society, such as investing in electric cars. And also profits are important of companies just to say pursue this idea of purpose and forget about profit that's just unrealistic so what i wanted to do was to have something which is middle of the road and say it needn't be shareholders or society there are ways in which you can actually pursue shared value and this is something which is not just too good to be true it's backed up by a lot of evidence and research and so what i want to do is forge a middle ground yes there is something about a purposeful approach to business but when you're purposeful, you can't just fully ignore the concept of profits and shareholder value. You need to be balanced. Otherwise, you might be in a situation like, say, Emmanuel Faber of Danone, where he was so concerned about 
serving wider society that he forgot about one of his key goals, which is to generate long-term profits as a result of taking his eye on the ball, off the ball. Actually, stakeholders suffered. He had to make 2,000 people redundant a few months before he was ousted. And I think I've heard you say before, which is a really good point, that we talk about shareholders versus society, but shareholders are society. So actually, we're sort of trying to grow this pie because the people who've invested in the company are society and therefore need that growth from their investments. That's absolutely right. You think about investors and you often portray them as nameless, faceless capitalists like hedge funds. But actually, who indeed invests in hedge funds? It could be university endowments, it could be insurance companies, it could be pension funds. So ultimately, the people who benefit from these investments are often ordinary citizens saving a retirement or the endowments of universities and the hospitals and charities and so on. So any repurposing of business needs to take investors seriously. Profit is not a bad thing if it's earned the right way. And all I'm stressing is the right way is that profit should be a byproduct of creating value for society, of growing the pie. It should not be as a result of splitting the pie differently. Can't quite explain exactly why, but it feels like we're in a moment now where the world kind of is quite open to these slightly different ways of viewing shareholder value, if you put it that way. Am I just talking myself into that? Or based on your sort of career, do you feel that now is a different moment where things are changing a little bit or is it just an evolution? Things are definitely changing, Dan. I actually think things are changing perhaps in too extreme a way. So people are now want to do things like demonstrate their commitment to ESG and responsible business. And therefore, they're trying to move too away from shareholder value. So one thing that I think is very well intentioned, but actually might backfire in terms of the results, is trying to link pay to ESG targets. So this is to say, we care so much about ESG, we're going to tie a CEO's pay to specific targets. And the concern with this is that, well, why do you want to do ESG to begin with if the idea is that these ESG factors ultimately do lead to stronger company performance, let's say corporate culture and so on? There are so many other non-financial factors that also lead to long-term performance. For 30 years, we've known this idea of the balanced scorecard that to measure a company's performance, you need to look at not just financial metrics, but non-financial metrics. And those metrics may include things like customer retention, employee attrition, net promoter scores, and so on. But nobody talks about linking pay to that. So if I look at some of these pay schemes out there, they might link it to water discharge reduction, waste to landfill reduction. And certainly, these things might be important for a company. I certainly care about the environmental footprint. But why are we now prioritising that over other ESG or intangible factors, which might be more relevant for the long-term success of the business, such as customer churn and employee retention? You get much better public relations out of saying, I'm linking pay to waste to landfill reduction, when you wouldn't link it to more business-relevant factors, such as customers and employees. You're almost saying that the current appetite for a more responsible approach to business is in danger of going down some dodgy avenues, basically. So it's it's almost kind of tripping over itself in some ways to do things. And that was why you felt there needed to be a sort of a middle road. Yeah. So people are saying, you as a company, you need to demonstrate your commitment to wider society. And so companies can demonstrate that with things which are actually pretty short-term actions, which look at things that can be directly reported, rather than addressing true ESG issues, which might be more deeply rooted. So one example might be diversity and inclusion, which is certainly something I care about as an ethnic minority. But what happened when Mr. Floyd was murdered 
companies donated lots of money to, say, Black Lives Matter. And it's not clear that that was the best use of their resources because, number one, they don't have comparative advantage. Why give to Black Lives Matter over, say, a childhood cancer charity? Or why not reinvest it within the company? So if you're a pharmaceuticals company or any other company where there's investments that would benefit society, maybe that was the best use of capital. And number two, if you're truly concerned about diversity and inclusion, can you not do things such as address issues such as a psychologically safe corporate culture? What are the processes that you're using to hire people to promote them, to promote work-life balance, particularly among females and working mothers and so on? Now, those are longer-term issues which might be more difficult to address. It's just much easier for you to say, I've donated a lot of money to charity, or to say, I've appointed X minority to senior management, when actually appointing somebody from the outside might backfire compared to trying to develop talent from within and see them internally promoted. So often we think shareholder value is short-term, stakeholder capitalism is long-term, but that dichotomy is not fair, as we talked about earlier. Shareholder value is a long-term concept, and this pressure towards stakeholder capitalism, in particular the pressure to demonstrate it to wider society, sometimes does force companies to focus on the short-term issues rather than the more long-term factors which are going to be really important to truly serve society. Should we focus just briefly on the sort of company angle? So you've very clearly set out the case to, I guess, think carefully about the allocation of capital and think about that long-term viewpoint. Think about the societal viewpoint and not just a sort of strict financial shareholder viewpoint. Are there any other sort of particularly strong ways that companies should be thinking? And do you have any other sort of, I guess, examples of other good behavior? Is this quite widespread now or is it really just a very small few number of companies that are doing this well? I do think it is widespread now in terms of the intent. You can even see this in the language. So if it was 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago, and we were having this conversation, we would talk about CSR, corporate social responsibility. And why I don't like that phrase is that has the connotation of something which is delegated to a CSR department and not part of the core business. And often you might have these people reporting into the head of marketing or communication. So this was something seen as a public relations exercise. Now, in many companies, these are things that CEOs and even CFOs are taking really seriously, because they understand that this is something which is linked to the long term success of the business. And indeed, when I write the book, I often talk about the business and financial case for purpose. So there's not just a moral and ethical case, this is something which is important for the long term sustainability of the business as a commercial enterprise. So I certainly do think there's a lot of appetite there. So it is not something which is niche. What I think is more niche is the nuanced approach that we've been talking about. So right now, when companies think about, yes, we need to embrace this idea of stakeholder capitalism, that seems to be something where we do want to, say, donate lots of money to charity. We want to be reactive. And whenever there's an issue in the media, such as Extinction Rebellion or Mr. Floyd's murder, we do want to immediately react to that. And certainly, we do want to be responsive to the times, but we also need to recognise that as a company, it is not our responsibility to solve every single one of the world's problems, but to focus on maybe the three or four that we have particular expertise in solving and to do that really well. So we've talked about charities in the past. Obviously, the analogy between a charity and a company is far from perfect. But the thing I think businesses can learn from the charity sector is charities never try to do everything. If you are Cancer Research UK, 
you focus on cancer research. You are not expected to focus on animal rights or heart disease or gender diversity. People recognise that. But if you're a company, sometimes people have expectations that that company should address all of society's issues and solve all 17 of the sustainable development goals, when actually your job is to try to find, well, what are the specific social challenges that we are best placed to solve, given the company that we are? Moving from companies to one level up, we kind of focus on the company level quite a lot, but I want to kind of get to the investor piece a little bit, because there's obviously a really important linkage and a slightly tricky one. You spend quite a lot of time in the book on it. And by the way, one of the things I really liked in the book is how you kind of unpack the concept of investors a little bit and even widen it to include investment consultants in there. And obviously, as investment consultants, we think we're absolutely vital part of that. So thanks for the shout out. But no, I mean, I think a lot of versions of this sort of thing sometimes slightly wrongly portray investors as kind of these huge institutions with loads of resources who have a load of directly owned positions in companies, which is not often the model that exists. You've obviously, you've got asset owners, you've got asset managers, you've got investment consultants. And in the book, you do a great job of laying all that out. But I guess stepping back, we've talked about the corporate piece. You've now got investors who are potentially looking at asset managers or managers who are looking at potentially hundreds of companies. How does that work for them? Because I can see people saying, well, this sounds great, but it's just going to be hard to track over a big portfolio. And how do I even start to grapple with it at that level? Yeah, I think investors have a really important role to play in the repurposing of business. Why? Because it's investors who ultimately call the shots. It's investors who vote on the director elections, for example. And so if they don't agree with the way that a company is going, then they can vote out current leadership. Often people will say to me, it's okay companies are trying to be responsible, but if investors are just focused on short-term profit, then they're never going to be able to make this a reality because then investors will just vote against a company which is pursuing long-term stakeholder value. But this is not the case because just as we've talked about the evolution within the corporate sector, we've also seen increasing appetite from the investment sector. So when I went to my first responsible investing conference 15 years ago, if I was to mention the names of the asset managers who were there, most of the listeners would have never heard of them. Why? Because they were niche players who were explicitly sustainable investors. They had goals other than shareholder value maximization. Whereas here, you have some of the most mainstream investors, such as the Black Rocks and the Fidelity of the world, which now embrace the idea of purpose and sustainable capitalism. Why? Well, they recognize that their fiduciary duty is to their end clients, but they see sustainability or ESG or purpose as a way of maximizing long-term returns to shareholders. So you see this in, say, Larry Fink's letter to CEOs in January this year saying stakeholder capitalism is not woke, it is capitalism. It is the idea of trying to think about the long-term issues which are important for the sustainability and viability of your business. However, just like I said earlier, that the appetite from companies is definitely there, but perhaps too extreme. I do see this also from some investors. Investors, in order to try to win money from clients, or perhaps sometimes to get a positive recommendation from investment consultants who are really important players in this chain, they might want to demonstrate their commitment to sustainability in rather stark ways. 
So it might be we want to vote against management or vote against executive pay or vote for shareholder proposals in as many cases as possible. When this is interesting because BlackRock has seemingly changed its shift on this issue, BlackRock is not always voting for every climate change proposal because they realise that in some cases this might be micromanagement. They might realise that in certain cases the companies are already doing a really good job. So Occidental Petroleum, for example, they had shareholder proposals to disclose even more climate and to set even more ambitious targets when they actually had the best-in-class reporting and targets within the industry. So sometimes shareholders might propose things to be saying, oh, we're taking action, when this might be veering into micromanagement. And also, similarly, it might be that investors will have policies which sort of sound good in order to be good public relations, even if they're not effective. So there are some investors who say, we will vote against any pay package which doesn't link pay to ESG metrics, when actually, as we've discussed earlier, that might not be the best way of achieving things. There are other investors who say, well, we are always going to vote against any board of directors recommendation, which does not bring diversity up to a certain level. Certainly, diversity is important, but diversity might be more than just gender or ethnicity. And also, don't we care about the competence of the board or the quality or the ability of the board? Yes, diversity is something that can affect the effectiveness of the board, but there's so many other dimensions, like the competence, like the skill mix, but it's so easy to measure gender or ethnic diversity. So an investor might just reduce this really complex thing of evaluating the quality of the board into very simple metrics, such as diversity. And because that's a very popular issue, and yet I would personally benefit from ethnic diversity quotas, it's something where you just focus on that one issue at the expense of the other measures of board competence or board functioning or board cohesiveness. So Alex, I'm really keen for your thoughts on How do I, as an investment consultant, how do my clients, when they're looking at the sales pitch, if you like, from various different investors, what are the warning signs that you've seen that we should all be looking out for that indicate that perhaps misguided behavior rather than truly following the concept that you outlined in your book? So I think anything which is one size fits all, I'd be concerned about. Because what we've talked about throughout this podcast is how a responsible company focuses on the material stakeholder issues which are relevant for its company and are linked to its comparative advantage. So a blunt one size fits all thing, which just does not take into account strategic context, is probably going to be less effective. And also, when you think about something like that, why is it that the investor has unique insight over the company? They don't see the company day to day, so it's not clear how something which might be seen as micromanagement can add value to what the company's already doing. Any good management team does recognise the importance of a diverse and inclusive workforce, does recognise that climate change is a serious issue. So sometimes what these proposals see, which is you need to state how you are taking into account climate change, hopefully any board would want to do that anyway. And it's not clear how public disclosure of something which might be their competitive strategy and their competitive advantage is necessarily going to be in people's interest. So anything which is sort of blanket and one size fits all, I'd be sceptical about. So that's on the negative side. I think on the positive side, what I would really like is more emphasis put on process rather than just metrics. So if you look at metrics, you can obviously say something like, oh, we voted against more management proposals and more shelled proposals than any other investor. 
but that's not necessarily the best thing. But if you talk about the process at which you decide your voting and engagement, that would be really useful. So there might be some companies who say, ah, our investing process is we try to look beyond ESG ratings and these standardized metrics. We try to take into account, well, what are the unique sustainability challenges facing this company and so on? Some asset managers say, well, these are issues which require a lot of expertise. We have an external advisory committee. So this is not just to plug Royal London. There are other asset managers that do that. But what they are doing is they're recognizing that these issues are really difficult we do want this external oversight and external expertise because if we were just to think among ourselves internally, it may well be that we make a decision based purely on the financial attractiveness and then we reverse engineer a story as to why is this sustainable. But if we're having this external oversight and these are people who only look at the sustainability of the investment, not the financial case, this tries to make sure that actually sustainability is seriously integrated into the investment process rather than something reverse engineered after we've already decided to make an investment decision on purely financial grounds. We've referred to sort of voting and engagement a little bit already, and perhaps we've jumped maybe the obvious point, but to back up quickly, I mean, am I right in saying that you're advocating for the importance of stewardship as a huge part of this, which is perhaps underappreciated? Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Investors do have a unique ability to directly control the firm through voting, so for particular pay proposals or board of direct nominations, or sometimes shareholder proposals, which they've come up with themselves. But just like our general conversation, these are things where it's not always the case that you want to oppose management or support shareholders. Why? Because sometimes the best thing to do, rather than opposing management in a vote, is to engage with management beforehand, so they come up with a proposal that you're willing to vote for. And if we, as a society, will praise investors for voting against, and then that actually discourages the value of engagement. And then similarly, when you look at shareholder proposals, many of them may actually be dealt with by the company already. So what's interesting, if you look at Amazon, they had a record 15 shareholder proposals last week. Many of them just seem on the face of it to be quite sensible. They're caring about wider society. They're things about reducing plastic packaging, equality in terms of pay and so on. You might think, well, why wouldn't you want to support that? But if you look at Amazon's responses to that, they are saying, well, we see these issues as being really important. This is what we are already doing on these grounds to address these issues. And sometimes those issues might actually be quite much deeper than the responses being um, suggested by the proposals. And this was hopefully not just marketing spin. This was something that a lot of serious investors did take seriously. And so this is why none of the proposals were passed. Just thinking through the comments that you've made, what can asset managers and so investors do to better present what they are doing in this space? So purely just voting stats, we're saying is not enough colour effectively, and it might actually encourage the wrong behaviours. What can asset managers do to better present what they are doing? on ESG? I think it would more be the the process. What is the full set of actions that they might take to integrate ESG into investment decisions? So they might say, well, firstly, how do we use this in terms of the decision to buy or sell a stock? What will they be looking at in terms of their data and their information sources. And I think what a lot of asset owners tell me is they really appreciate a boots on the ground approach where you're not just doing this desktop research based on ESG ratings. ESG ratings and data are useful, but they're only useful as a precursor to a conversation. 
It's just like when you're hiring somebody, you would never hire somebody on the basis purely of their CV, but that CV will then guide you into a conversation with management. Sometimes some asset managers might be willing to share with asset owners and investment consultants a stock note. So these are the internal stock notes that they have within the asset manager in order to decide whether or not to buy or sell a particular company and just to see, well, what are the issues that they take into account? Are they taking into account? ESG issues, but are these only the material ESG issues? And is this something where we're going to consider in addition to the standard financial analysis rather than to the exclusion of the financial analysis? So I think that's one thing useful is the investment process, what causes to make investment decisions, but also to discuss, well, what is your general approach to engaging with the company? So often this might be starting with private engagements where you're trying to highlight particular issues to a company. Sometimes this might go into a collective engagement. So there are platforms like the Investor Forum with which investors can collaborate with other investors to engage together and so on. And maybe some case studies of situations in which they have engaged with the company and what this led to in terms of the outcome would be very helpful. So yes, the voting is not something which should be completely ignored, but voting is only one tool in the general engagement channel. It could be that private meetings or collective engagement are also useful tools. And I'd like to see asset managers using the full suite of what they have at their disposal, rather than perhaps the most visible tool, which is the number of times you voted against management. And on the other side of the coin, I guess, when managers are presenting kind of the return-driven case for ESG or responsible investing, and I know you've shared a few thoughts from the sort of academic mindset of how maybe they should be thinking a little bit differently in terms of how they're presenting those results. Maybe you could just share a little bit of that with us quickly. Yeah, so I think it's just useful to be cognizant of, well, what are the most material ESG issues and the ones which might not be material for a particular company? So we often want to claim we're trying to address every single issue, but you do have trade-offs. As a company, you might have limited resources. As an investor, what to engage in? You might not be able to engage in everything. If you are an investor which says we have particular expertise in, say, the design of executive pay contracts, maybe that will be an important investment theme, an important engagement theme for you over the next coming year. But what I do think is quite useful is when you have investors who say, well, here are our particular engagement themes, perhaps based on expertise or perhaps based on the materiality today, that is better than saying, oh, we're going to be engaging with companies on every single issue because you have sort of limited engagement time with companies. So let's try and make sure that it's focused on the issues that are most important. Alex, we're getting towards the end of the episode now, and I wanted to just ask you, what's next on your agenda in, say, the next 12 months? What are you researching at the moment? Anything more we could expect to see from you in the next year? Thanks for asking, Mary. There's a couple of things on my agenda. So the first is actually just continuing to disseminate the ideas of grow the pie is that the research process doesn't stop with publication. This is why I love to do podcasts like this. I'm really grateful for the opportunity just to spread that existing message more widely. The book is being translated or has been translated into several languages and to give similar talks in other countries because responsible business is an issue which affects all countries around the world. And also through these things, I learn a lot. So the paperback version of the book that came out only 18 months after the hardback, Normally, you just publish the same thing. But because I've had 18 months of conversations with companies and investors, I was able to enhance it a number of ways through that. So one part of what I'm doing is just continuing this agenda of responsible business, not only presenting it, but also learning myself from the companies and investors I speak to. The second thing I'm trying to do is to make it more mainstream, is that I really appreciate the reception that Grow the Pie has had. But if you need to read that book, 
in order to think about responsibility, you've lost the battle. Why? Because it takes a particular mindset to want to go out and read a book which is explicitly about responsible business. So I'm now a co-author of the main textbook on finance. It's called Principles of Corporate Finance by Breeley, Myers and Allen. So that was the book that I learned from when I was an undergrad. We were all given it at Morgan Stanley. I'm now a co-author of the 14th edition of the book, which is just out. And so what I've tried to do is from chapter one, highlight the importance of responsible business so that if you're just taking a mainstream finance class, not with an explicit responsibility agenda, you're learning the importance of these issues. And third and final thing is I'm halfway through a book on a completely different topic, which is about misinformation and the misuse of data and evidence. So one of the things that prompted me to write my book was the extremism where people saw things in very black or white terms. And what I'm trying to do in this book, it follows from my TED talk, What to Trust in the Post-Truth World, is to highlight the issue of confirmation bias, how that leads us to evaluating or accepting studies based on whether we like the findings rather than whether they're rigorous, and then provide sort of a useful toolkit for a time-pressed practitioner to know how can we see whether this is a study that we can trust or how can we easily spot particular flaws in the argument. Well, we can certainly link to the TED Talk. Do you have a feel for when the book might be ready? Well, I think these things might take about a year to produce. So <laughs> I'm still working with the agent. We're hopefully going to send it out to publishers very soon, but we're still even thinking about the nailing on the title. And then once hopefully a publication deal will come through, then it might be another year before it actually comes out. But the TED Talk, What to Trust in the Post-Truth World, is something that I did a couple of years ago. And just like it took a while for me to make the responsible business research accessible in the book with the pie, now I think it's the right time, just given the, the amount of polarisation and misinformation you see, to make that idea also more widely accessible. Great. I look forward Absolutely. to checking that out. Definitely. I mean, we could have recorded a whole podcast on that idea, which is a really powerful one, of course. And you see confirmation bias all the time, don't we, when you're looking at data? And I think we're all a little bit guilty of it, we've got to admit. But you see something that suits your view and you just kind of grab onto it without being as critical as we could. Getting towards the end here then, Alex, we've covered a huge amount of terrain. Just stepping back, what's one thing you'd like to leave the listeners with? What I'd like to leave the listeners with is this idea of responsible business is good for business and it's good for financial returns. So you certainly have moral and ethical reasons to be responsible and they should not be discounted. But I think unless there's a strong business and financial case, this might always be secondary in the minds of a CEO or an investor. But what I want to highlight is that these are things which should be taken very seriously by any mainstream executive or investor. Why? Because these are issues which are linked to the long-term viability and commercial success of a business, but only if done in a targeted and focused way, not trying to address every single ESG issue in society. And Alex, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think it's that is investing has a huge impact on wider society. So people think, oh, we only invest because we want to make money. But the way that you would make money is by supporting businesses that create huge amounts of social value. So I was just at a social dinner last night with some friends, some of whom work in venture capital, and others were founders. So it's a bit of like a startup type dinner with a ivory tower academic like me sort of hanging on to this. But what was really powerful is that why do we have so many companies today which transform lives? Like where would we be without things like Google Maps or Google Search? It's because venture capital investors were financing them to begin with. And it's not just venture capital investors. Once the company goes public, then it might be more mainstream investors. But investors play this huge role 
in supporting companies. So it's not just making money. That itself is not a bad thing, but it's making money through supporting businesses that create value for society. So I think investors should be seen in a much more positive light to how often the media portrays them. Great. That's a great point. Alex, finally, any recommendations for our listeners? What sort of things do you read or listen to on podcasts if you do get any time for that? Actually, very little in terms of business and economics, because unfortunately, many podcasts I hear are pretty one-sided and extreme. So what I like to listen to is podcasts and things like football and something completely unrelated. But there is one very good podcast in economics. It's called All Else Equal by two professors. One is Jonathan Burke at Stanford. The other is Jules Van Binsberg at Wharton. These are two people right at the top of the game. And why is it called All Else Equal? is that when we're making practical decisions as managers or investors, we might just make incorrect inferences from studies, not realising that other things are not equal. For example, in an investment decision, you might want to say, oh, I want to invest in the company with the biggest growth prospects. That seems to make sense. But what is not equal is the price. Often the price will reflect the growth prospects into account. And so just to be aware of these hidden factors is useful. So they not only speak among themselves, but they will have some great guests. So the first guest they had was Ruth Porat, the CFO of Google, recently had Larry Summers, the Treasury Secretary in the US. So they will also speak to real practitioners as to how they try to avoid these all else equal mistakes in their decisions. Fantastic. Football-wise, is there a particular podcast you tend to listen to or all and everything? I do, but nobody will want to listen to it because it's only on my team. So sadly, I have to support Reading. That's where I grew up. And you would never choose to support that unless you were fated to because of where you live. But no normal person would want to listen to that podcast. I'm afraid I would not recommend that to your listeners. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Alex, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been brilliant. Really enjoyed it myself. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks, Mira, for having me on. Thanks very much, Alex. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut, but join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.